everybody. It's it's like the afternoon there, and you're drinking a Coke. <laughs> I'm always I'm always uh, getting caffeine somehow. Yeah. Good. Well, <laughs> cheers to that, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> cheers. All the way from a club across the ocean and across the U.S. Um, well, I'll tell you a little bit about me. I'm Beto Gudiño. I'm here in a church in Costa Mesa called Palm Harvest. And I have a dream. <laughs> I have a dream that people will connect to God and Jesus. And I know Christian podcasts, it just seem a little cheesy to me, to be honest, you know, with the name. But I thought it's not about me. It's about the church and it's about the church's future. And I think this was the best approach that I could have. So with that, you know, I, I love that you're on, on the podcast today because I was reading the underground um, church book that you wrote a few years back. And we actually been been uh, reading together along with all the elders and, and some mm -hmm. of the staff here at the church. So it's been a phenomenal journey, you know, just to be able to sit down, uh, read a few of the pages together. And then as a church, maybe try to think in a different way uh, based on your idea. So today having you on the show is actually you know, almost like a dream come true because it, it's so amazing. So, and I want to start first, would you tell the audience, we have an audience worldwide, mm -hmm. and I think that's why it's so empowering to have you on the show. Would you tell us a little bit about what you do, and just to hear from yourself? Yeah, well, you know, we, I wrote that book, uh, Underground Church, um, you know, to tell a little bit of the story of, of a movement that we started in Florida, in Tampa, Florida. Uh, maybe 12, 13 years ago. Um, so, and, and coming up with, of course, it, it, we, we call it the underground network. Um, and it's a, it's essentially a, an alternative, I guess you could say an alternative form of the church. Um, really, really envisioning the church as a network of smaller expressions of the church, which we call micro churches, uh, which are empowered and autonomous and led by called people, you know, people who know exactly where God has called them into a certain frontier field of his mission and to sort of, you know, build something, a family, a community, if you will, uh, around that. But, you know, it's also, the name is also kind of a, a tribute to the underground church in history, you know, um, the persecuted. Um, it is interesting, isn't it, dude, that that sometimes the church is, is at its zenith, it's at its brightest when it's persecuted, you know, when it's not really allowed to meet. Yeah. Um, and I've always loved that. I've always loved the sort of the powerful and visible possibility of the church when it isn't trying to build its brand or build up leaders egos or um even 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 one particular kind of way of doing things or idea the church is really almost a super organism like it, it's indomitable it cannot actually be broken when it operates that way so that's a part of the name too is it's just like a tribute to um the church in that form awesome and yeah. what is your role in the in the underground network? 
Well, up until very, very recently, I would have been the founder and executive director, um, but it's sort of time for some new blood and uh, new. we have a really classy, talented, passionate group of young leaders and executives. So they're kind of taking over. I'm still... I'm still a part of it. And, and of course, our network has grown uh, beyond our city. And, and we're, we're, you know, we have relationships and sister movements all over the world now. So I'm actually in Ireland, as we just talked about a minute ago before we started. But uh, so now I'm living and working in Ireland, but still, um, you know, deeply connected to the work, not just there in Florida, but our sister movements all around the world. Awesome. Well, I love that, you know, in the in the book, you really laid out the framework that you guys started to to build the underground network. And it's a complete you no know, different approach to doing church than probably what we've known for the past you know, the past few centuries <laughs> and especially the you know the the last century really. And one thing I would love to touch on Right off the bat, because I, I thought it was almost like hilarious, but then at the same time, it was intriguing. And even now with COVID, I'm curious to know, you know, kind of like, hmm, what, like, uh, no, how is this played out and what's happening in the church around the world with the lockdowns and uh, not being able to meet and things like that. But um, I love a phrase that you said in somewhere in the book, in the, in the latest episodes, in the latest chapters, you said hurricane category four uh, was going to hit the city in a church you were working at um, back then, a traditional type of church. And then, you know, you suggested, well, people were meeting and they're like, are we going to have a service? Are we not? And you're like, are you kidding me? A hurricane category four is about to hit and you're worrying about you know, opening the church. Let's just not have a service. Right. But then, uh, I mean, you almost put it in a funny way that you had a, almost like a lecture on how the economics of a traditional church work. And they said, If we don't open, that's money we don't make, right? That's yeah. staff that doesn't get paid. Uh, I mean, it could be chaotic, right? And now I I'm just curious to know or to you know, get from your vantage point, was God preparing you for even like something like COVID to happen? Um, and what are churches going through right now, right? Because COVID is like, mm -hmm. hey, we're not meeting. Well, does that mean a bunch of churches are not making money, are not paying staff? What's happening? What's, I mean, what's the, the context that you've been in the past 10 years? How have, what's your vantage point with, with money and the church? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that, that was really a strange experience and story because it was a kind of education for me to realize that we were actually trapped to some degree by an economic model. So the way we do things, I, I, I meet people all the time, I'm sure you do too, that are very open to change or new ideas or fresh expressions of the church or, you know, an adaptation and leadership. It's exciting. It's cool. Let's talk about it. But when you actually start to try to implement those changes, you realize we can't because, you know, we're built a certain way and our money is tied in, our, our, our economic model is tied into that. And so even if you want to make certain kinds of changes, which often people do, 
uh, they can't. They're trapped. You know, we we have to run services because that's where we collect offerings, which is how we pay our staff, which is how we run services, which is how we collect offerings, and so on and so on. If you would have told me a year ago that there was a way that, that we could just do one thing, one gesture that would make every single church in America and even the world give up, in a sense, for a time Sunday morning worship and services. Well, first of all, I would have thought that's impossible. There's no such possibility for that. But I probably could not have thought of a better thing to happen to the church. Because our dependence on that choice, that cultural expression in the church, which is good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's great. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to gather, to sing, to hear God's word, to listen to leadership. It's lovely. It's beautiful. But it's it's not the only way to be the church, and it's not even probably the most important or biblical expression of what it means to be the church. I don't I don't even think anyone would even say that. But we're trapped in it, you know. <laughs> we don't really have a choice. We have to kind of keep doing it. At least it feels that way. It seems that way. And so suddenly, you're right. I mean, suddenly the whole world has had to ask the question, which I think is maybe the most provocative question of the 21st century for people that care about churches or church planting or leadership. The most provocative and profound question we can ask is, what is the church? Hmm. You know, there's like a whole, I don't know, renaissance of church planting in the last 20 years. People are just out there trying to plant churches, which is a beautiful thing. But we never really stopped in that frenzy to ask the question, what are we planting? Like, what actually is the church at its core? Like, in its essence, what is it? We just assume, well, that's a church over there on the corner. You know, it has a building and a marquee and a pastor and some money and Sunday gatherings. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So we thought, let's plant more of those. <laughs> we rushed out to make more of them, you know, and we never stopped to ask the question, should we make more of those? Or actually, that's just a cultural expression of the church. Mm-hmm. So do we need it? Is that is that the one that we need in the next 20 years? I know I know you talked to Len Sweet recently. So like it, it, let's think let's think about the future a little bit. You know, like is that gonna be is that thing that we have right there gonna be the thing that unlocks the psyche, the hopes and dreams, that wins hearts and minds of the next generation and the generation after that? I almost don't I don't think of a single person would say it is. And yet that's what we got busy planting. That's what we got busy making. So COVID has made us ask that question, hasn't it? Like, yeah. actually, what are we without church services? And and I think part of what we've discovered, man, is there's a lot more to us than that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that actually we, we're kind of this complex, beautiful tapestry of people and ideas and callings and missional impulses. And we never really were just a worship service in the end, you know? Wow. I think, I mean, in in the book, in one of the early chapters, you narrate how you had to go to the Philippines for like nine months to rethink what the underground was going to be like, right? To rethink church, to maybe ask that question. And I can't help but think that, Maybe, I mean, maybe God was preparing you as an entrepreneur and really as a, an apostle, as a guy with brand new ideas to maybe lead 
a whole generation, and I don't know, I don't want to put a, a lot of pressure on you and you know, a lot of weight on you, but it seems to me like you're at the forefront of of something new, you know, of, of what is the church, of a, a new expression of the church. And I mean, I, I love the fact that you, in, in the book, you, you said we had to, if no, we get stripped away of everything we know, what are the essentials of the church, mm-hmm. right? And you came up with, with three, you know, I'm just going to call it three prone course. It's worship, community, and mission. Would you tell us a little bit about, you no? Know, what does that mean to you and what does that mean maybe for the church of the future? Yeah, so I mean, and and that's that that is right at that that core question of what is the church. I mean, if I ask you, okay, um, what is the irreducible minimum of a thing that you would say, okay, that's still the church, you know, or what we would call the ecclesial minimum, or in, in business terms, it's like the minimum viable product. You know, what is the minimum viable product for the church? So, is it good to have buildings? Yeah, but do you have to have a building to be the church? You know. No, you don't. I mean, it's good to have money, but do you have to have money to be the church? Actually, no. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe slightly more difficult questions to answer, like, do you have to have leadership? Do you have to have the sacraments? Do you have to? Those are questions that we all have to answer, and each each person, each community can answer in its own way. But what what is the smallest unit that if you if you just had these bits, you'd still have to admit? That's a church. And for us, the answer we came up with was, was that sort of three worship, which is that vertical component. And what we mean by that is not a worship service, but we mean like submission to Jesus as Lord. Um, so that that vertical component. And then the two horizontal components, which is community, like deep relationships with each other, uh, and mission. Somehow trying to expand the boundaries of the kingdom of God in the world through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel, the concern and the urge towards justice, you know, the ways in which the kingdom is ushered in, the reign of Jesus is ushered in. We call that mission. So look, when we would say, this is the answer we came to, someone else might say there's four things or seven things, whatever yours is, that's fine. Uh, that's what you should get busy planting then, whatever that minimum viable product is. And for us, you know, it's like we thought, if you see those three things occurring in a group of people, you're looking at the church. You're looking at the church. And so all of a sudden, man, stuff that we weren't calling church before, we we were now suddenly. And then some things we were calling church, like just because they had a sign, but all they ever did was worship together and maybe had like, minimal community with each other, but never did mission, mm-hmm. never like expressed the kingdom or expanded the kingdom where they were. From our definition, suddenly those things actually aren't the church. They can be, they're good. I mean, they could still be, you know, beneficial or lovely, but at least in that, that sort of tripartite definition, they wouldn't, they wouldn't meet our criteria. Um, wow. But, but it opens things up and all of a sudden, Okay, if that's it, that's all it takes. You don't need a seminary education. You don't need money. You don't need training even. You just need to be a group of people who love Jesus and are in submission to him, love each other, committed to each other, and trying to do mission somewhere. If that's the church, then suddenly you have the possibility that everybody can be a church planner and everybody can can be expressing the church somewhere, which then means 
how are we going to knit those things together? You know, mm-hmm. what do we have then when you have a hundred of them or 200 of them in one city or a thousand of them in one city? Then what are you? And how do you relate to each other? And how do you support each other? How do you believe in each other? How do you not control each other? But how do you also provide some kind of governance or oversight or support or a standard for leadership? All those crazy, beautiful questions then follow that 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 dangerous question of what is the church? Wow. Yeah, it's so good, man. And the book, I mean, it's phenomenally written. It has so many beautiful quotes that I uh, I mean, like one right here. What makes us a part of the church is not the act of believing something or even doing something is yearning for something more to the point. It is yearning for someone, right? I don't know if, you know, when you were writing, you were like, so uh, conscious of like all the, the awesome quotes you were giving <laughs> the world, but it's beautiful. And then uh, one of the, the ideas I love about the underground network is the idea of a centralized, decentralized type of church. Could you explain a little bit um, you know, for the audience what what does that look like? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, th- I think we kind of stumbled on this, but but it may be one of the more important kind of innovations, certainly in governance, um, was the idea that you... You know, we've seen decentralized, organic church movements, even in recent history, but they don't last. So they'll they'll typically last about 10 years and something goes wrong. You know, somebody steals money or somebody sleeps with someone or and then then all of a sudden there there's actually no clarity. There's no governance. There's no there's no way to deal with it. And so it, it, there's a disaffection that happens and people, they just dissipate, you know. And then, of course, we all know what hierarchical systems look like. You know, we all know what churches that, that exert high control and answer to one person or one group of people at the top. So you have hierarchy on the one hand, and then you have uh, organic systems on the other. Hierarchical systems, organic systems. So I, I, what I'll do if I had a whiteboard is like draw an umbrella. In the stem of the umbrella, you can think of two systems under that umbrella, two operating systems, if you will. You've got the hierarchical system, which serves a certain kind of purpose, and then you have the decentralized organic system, which serves a different kind of purpose. And so what we did essentially was we created a form of governance which embraces both, which 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 uh, understands the relationship between those two things. So the underground is an umbrella. And on the one side, we have a kind of organization, you know, hierarchical organization. We have an executive director. We have a board of directors. We have we hire people. We fire people. We raise money. We spend money. We own buildings. We sign leases, so forth, right? And that's done a certain way. We're registered with the government as a 51c3, whatever. That's hierarchy. But on the other side, we have this organic church planting movement, which is totally made up of autonomous individuals. So the all the microchurches are run by their own leaders. We call them elders, but they're 
they're autonomous. They're free to do as they please. You know, uh, we don't control them. So the hierarchy doesn't control them. They're not under us. They don't belong to us. You know, because big churches can do that. They can have small groups or they can have cells or something like that. But the problem, in, in my view, is possessiveness, it's ownership, it's control. It's essentially saying these are our groups, our small groups. They're the small groups of first church or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we would that's not an organic system. Then. That's just a system where the smallest expression is under the hierarchy. And I think it's the opposite. So then what we did was we said the organic is the more important thing. That's where the church exists, right? But the church needs somebody to come up with with risk policies to get by insurance to sign leases and so on so we thought let's create an organization that serves so this is the big innovation um that actually it's the it's the centralized that serves the decentralized so my staff we are at the bottom of that in a sense that inverted hierarchy we are the servants of those microchurches of those elders of those those organic expressions of the church and our hope was that we would protect and preserve that organic movement by giving it some boundaries some structure by having a value system that they would have to um, adhere to so we don't tell people how to do ministry but we do say if you harm people you you have to stop or if you if you no longer uh, teach or preach Jesus, then you're out. So there's there's boundaries, but they're based on values, not based on method or approach to mission. That's, that's totally up to you. But you can't harm people. You can't steal money. You know, you can't you can't lose Jesus or forget Jesus. Which, yeah. by the way, we we come to that glue through covenant. It, it it's a choice that people make to say, I want to be held to that standard. But the key is, of course, the hierarchy. The organic doesn't serve the hierarchical. The hierarchical serves the organic. That's the two operating systems. Wow. It's so good, man, because it's the kingdom of God, right? Showcased through Jesus is servant leadership. And it's, it's. Yeah. I mean, for many people, maybe their view of God is, you know, the guy that's up there in heaven controlling, right? The hierarchy, it's, it's coming from there and the incarnation is actually that awesome beautiful being becoming a human taking the form of really servant leadership right going from the bottom up and that's the kingdom um and really i think that's what jesus did right he showcased his life to 12 guys right every day living for three years And then he goes and then he commands them, okay, now go and share the gospel. But one thing I love that you mentioned in the book also is that he, the the biggest gift that he gives the disciples is I give you my authority, right? And But what is authority? Because then, right, if we think authority coming, yeah, it's, I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to be at the top. I'm going to rule. I'm going to command. I'm going to say, do this this way. Right. And really the authority, if we look at it in, in, in the light of Jesus and the kingdom, it's what is your passion? What is your calling? And the authority has already been given to you by God. How do you, or how can we help 
people discover their calling? What what has been helpful in you know in your in your journey to discover that? Well, I, th I think what you just said there is pretty profound. You know, the idea that even just can we just admit that a part of what it means to say yes to Jesus and to follow him and to be rescued, loved and saved by him is to be sent into the world somehow. And that that he God has a specific thing for you to do in the world in his name and for the sake of his mission. And really for the relief of his suffering. I mean, think about that for a second. Like the grieving of God over brokenness, injustice, hatred, sin, unbelief. It, it's like God cares about the world, actually. Cares about people. And he's grieved. He's broken. And we are his hands, feet, his physicality in the world to address it, to alleviate it. Um, it's, it's pretty like breathtaking that that's possible that god would use human beings for the exertion of his love in the world and yet he does he has and it's not special people it's all of us so once we've been loved and called by him the next thing that comes is is an assignment you know there's something for us to do And being able to just admit that, first of all, that our assignment is not just to show up at a church on Sunday and put money in the plate. That's actually not probably it. That's probably not your <laughs> calling in life, you know. Uh, and that might be a fine thing to do. Uh, but I promise you, you're, you've been made for more than that. You know, he's given you gifts uh, that are well, well, well beyond that. And so, yeah, how do we hear his voice? You know, uh, I think of like I have kids. I have six kids. Wow. Um, a lot of a lot of them are grown now, but you know, as a father, I will call my kids. You know, as a dad, you don't get up and go looking for your kids. You just shout. That's what you do. You know, you just yell <laughs> for your kids. Yeah. And then they're supposed to come. You know, when they hear <laughs> when they hear their name, they're supposed to come. They know the thing to do is come to me, right? And then usually there's a reason. You know, like so th that's the two connotations of calling, right? The first connotation is a he knows you. He knows your name. That's already crazy. You know, he knows you by name and he has called you to himself. So forget about mission. Forget about out there. The first connotation of calling is he knows you, he loves you. He wants you to come to him. But then, yeah, once I've come to him and that relationship, that intimacy is kind of acknowledged, it's present. The next thing is I have something for you to do. You know, I need you to get something or do something. There's something in particular I need from you. And that's just as, that's just as incredible. You know, uh, that's where we get our sense of purpose and significance and probably even our greatest sense of joy in the world is to go do that thing the Father has sent us to do. Um, not to say that it isn't really hard because often he will send us like a sheep among wolves. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about like the, 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 the edge, the precipice of darkness, where light touches darkness. He wants to send us into the actual darkness, and it's hard. It's hellish. Mm -hmm. So it's not easy where he sends us, but it's worth it. It's incredible, it's, yeah. and, he, and only he can sort of help us once we get there. So, you know, the idea that, first of all, just that, that we are called people and that we are then therefore sent and that there's something out there that breaks the heart of God 
that we're meant to like I don't know, not just love people. I mean, that's, of course, that's central to missions, to love those people, to care, to see them reconciled to God, but actually to love God, you know, to, to think I've seen the grief on his face concerning this issue or about these people. And I have to do every single thing within my power to bring those people back to him, to bring those children home. Um, you know, isn't that what drives Jesus in the incarnation anyway? It's like for the love of the Father. You know, I think it was uh, Jürgen Moltmann, the German theologian, that said um, Jesus first dies for his Father before mm-hmm. he dies for us. Wow. So, you know, he goes to the cross first because for the sake of the Father, because the Father has asked him to, you know, and because he wants to see the world reconciled to his Father because he knows it grieves his Father's heart to be separated from his people, from his children. So that's all wrapped in there too, man. Like our calling, a sense of mission, a sense of significance, a purpose, and sentness, man, it's all, it's all yeah. right there pregnant in that one idea. Yeah. And, and I mean, you could... The thing about the first question that we were asking, what is church? Because let's say, you know, you discover I'm called by God, right? I'm loved by God. I have a father that calls me, knows me by name. But then also he has sent me. I have a passion. I have a a yearning. I want to see things turn out right. But... But here's the thing that I love about, you know, the at least the framework that you that you show us in the underground is that when those people discover that and they say, this is my passion and they lay it out before, you know, the 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 hierarchy of the church and then they get a yes, they say Yes, we're going to get behind you. Yes, you don't need to worry about, you know, all the paperwork or all the maybe the money or all the the media part. We want you to pursue mission. We want you to pursue calling. I mean, the first part is is lovely, but to be able to have a yes, I think that that takes, I mean, what you talk about really in your book, brave ideas, brave people. Right. And what an invitation for the church of the future to think in a whole different way. Right. Because really, wouldn't it be awesome if once people find their calling and that they are loved and they say, this is my passion, that they would get no no's. Right. <laughs> that they when, when they say, this is what I want to pursue. You know what? There's no money. Or you know what? Uh no, that's that's not us, or no, that's not what we do, or we are constrained to this, right? And really, I, I think that is really where, where the church is going to become explosive when they find that calling, but then that, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, that uh, how can we help churches say yes? I mean, uh, you for sure, I mean, read the book. That's <laughs> maybe one step. But is is there some practical tools, well, ways, yeah, ideas? I, I think I think you're you're right to point out. You know, we could, you know, if if every single person in your church just came to the senior pastor's office tomorrow and said, "I've I've discovered what my calling is. I'm ready to go," 
you know, what would they do? <laughs> you know, uh, it could feel very, it could feel very chaotic and undermining to the way the church runs. And I think that's part of it. Even, even if their heart is to say, yes, you want to say, well, you definitely should do that. That's beautiful. You should follow Jesus, but we can't help you. We're not set up for that. And so it exposes a systemic reality, which is we're built to produce church the way we have it. And I think that's that's also going to take courage in the years to come is for people to look at our systems, not to not to burn them down, um, but to be to be kind of uh, sober about them and to say they're not they're not set up to say yes. They're not set up to give permission and they're not set up to support. And they're definitely not set up to help these ideas flourish, because, by the way, whatever God has sent you to do, whatever mission he's called you to do, it's going to be really hard and the enemy is going to block you. So there's going to be a lot of reasons why it could fail. So that's a part of the, the, the maybe the innovation of the underground is to create, actually to build all the systems of the church to help those ideas flourish and to actually have no spare parts, no superfluous conditions which pull away from that, which make us want to say no or feel tempted to say no or to say yes, but say we can't really help you. Uh, and so, you know, having the courage to redesign our systems, or if you're part of a church and you just think that is that is like years from where we are. We don't. I my argument would be uh, like give a tithe. You know, think of I would even think of maybe twenty percent. Can you think of twenty percent of your money, twenty percent of your staff time, twenty percent of your building square footage, twenty percent of your your coaching, your counseling, your, can that go towards people with missional ideas? Just begin to sort of uh, steal away some of the resources of the church uh, to say yes. And and it might, it's going to stretch you to be hard. But in the end, what you hope is you could say yes to every idea. A hundred percent of people that are called particularly into mission, you could support them. Um, permission, the idea of permission is a profound thing. But only because it's absent, brother. You know, like mm. it shouldn't be profound. But it is wow. profound for so many of us because we've grown up without it. Because we really we really think we're going to sit across from somebody with spiritual leadership in our lives, and they're going to tell us no. And I, and I say this in the book, but I feel very strongly about this. That is a scandal. You know, no, no spiritual leader should ever tell a person no when God is calling them to something. That is not your purview. It is not your, you do not have permission to tell a person they cannot do a thing that God has called them to do. Now, people come up with crazy ideas all the time. Some of them are truly bad. That would be me. Uh, <laughs> I come but with even, crazy but ideas. Even that, but even that, it's like, man, if, if, it's, if, it's, if, it, if it honors Jesus, if it's about his kingdom, like people, people need to be given permission to fail. They need to be given permission to try. Uh, we talk a lot about discipleship in the West, Western Church. You know, how do we disciple, make disciples? You know, just we create discipleship curriculum and so on. Listen, I will tell you, the absolute best discipleship curriculum I have ever seen is to just let people go do what Jesus told them to do. And wow. They will struggle like crazy. They'll learn how to pray. They'll learn how to share their faith. They'll learn how to contextualize. They'll learn how to build a team. They'll learn how to fall and come back again. They'll learn how to hope. They'll learn how to dream. They'll learn how to love. They'll learn how to apply scripture. All that stuff. You don't have to, you don't have to do a class on it. If if that is if if that disciple is forged in the fire of mission. 
I mean, once you put yourself out there in that world, you got no choice. You'll, you'll either become a disciple or you'll quit, you know? And I just think it, it's one of the most beautiful, natural, like, ways to see a person be discipled, so to speak, to become a disciple. And, and what's interesting about that, too, is the way we've used that word is a little bit troubling, you know, for me, because we've talked about it like you're going to disciple me. And so you're my what? You're my Jesus. You're my uplink. You're my, you're my discipler. But I thought we were meant to be disciples of Jesus. So the language begins to get tricky for us. It trips us up, mm-hmm. right? And I think to believe really in the headship of Jesus over His church, and and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't mean to to belittle another way to look at it, but uh, from my point of view, to really believe in the headship of Jesus and His church is to say only He can disciple His people, and He's mm-hmm. ready to do it. He's actually a living person. Uh, at work in the in the scenario, you know, <laughs> he's not he's not missing from the equation. Like we don't need to to develop a discipleship plan that excludes him. You know, we actually need to think of to, whatever our discipleship approach is. There needs to be a big, huge hole in the middle of it, where only God Himself can come, where only God Himself can fit. And I think saying yes to people's calling, helping them figure it out, sending them into the the world of mission. It does that, man. It, it 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 accelerates the process of discipleship, and God Himself, the Spirit of God Himself, is the one teaching. Wow, yeah, that's good. I love that. And let me move back. I, I think I'm a little crazy. I have crazy ideas all the time, right? So. <laughs> I feel like almost with today's conversation, like I said, I started on the end, you know, I started with money and stuff and I've been almost like moving back to the beginning, at least in my mind. <laughs> and, but let's talk about before people learn and discover that they are loved by God, before people understand that, you know, there's even a God or there's you no know, that divine being that loves them. Because I, I think it was part of your journey coming out of the, the structures that we had inherited as churches that you realized, you know what, there's there's something weird here. There's, or maybe you didn't say weird, I'm putting words right, I'm paraphrasing, but um, something something's funky. And then, I mean, you said it, I'll just quote you. You said, the edifice of my American Protestantism began to crumble, and I became grateful for the demolition. I want to tell you a story, because I grew up in Mexico, in Guadalajara, and uh, I mean, to my surprise, I grew up in a Protestant church in Mexico, you know, in a, in a country that's majority Catholic, you know, nominal Catholic. Um I was in a Protestant church, in a Christian church, or evangelical, whatever you want to call it. And I mean, I had a great time growing up there. It was beautiful, had the greatest time. But we had kids camp every summer uh, outside the city in the woods. And I remember maybe because of our, no, the church was founded probably by people coming from America and whatnot. But I remember we used to sing a song in the morning, kind of like for a devotional. Um, you know, somebody would give a word and stuff. And then we would six, sing songs. And we would sing songs to to Mexico. 
And we would say, Mi México, mi México, Dios premie tu valor, tu nombre, nada. Something like that, right? What a disappointment when I discovered that wasn't an original song for Mexico. <laughs> that the original said, America, America. Honestly, I, I don't know how late in my life I had discovered that, but I was super disappointed. You know, something was like, I've been singing this song thinking it was like an original, my Mexico, my Mexico. <laughs> Only to find out, you know, somebody just said, hey, you know, that's how we sing it in America, but let's contextualize it, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... I mean, the edifice of my American Protestantism began to crumble. I, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a generation, maybe in the West, that is, there's, there's something crumbling for them in, in the way they, they see God, in the way they see the church, in the way they see their inherited systems. How can we help them, first of all, you know, see maybe God in a different way, see God in a different light? And of course, you know, I, I think the fact that sending people with their specific callings, it's a big part of that, right? But what would you tell specifically to maybe people tuning in or listening that uh, they're just, they're, the Christianity as they know it has crumbled, right? And you experience something similar. Well, the first thing I would say is, is don't panic. Uh, this has all happened before. So, in fact, I think um, every generation to be a living, healthy expression of the church takes its inherited form. So think of that as sort of the first thing. You, you, all of us inherit some cultural expression of the church, right? And then we have to read the New Testament. You know, we all go and read the New Testament and go, we, I hope, wow, this is breathtaking. This is invigorating. This is beautiful. This is inspiring. I want this. I want to see this happen in my lifetime. I want to see this happen in my world, in my country, in my city, in my neighborhood. So we all inherit a system, and we, we all sense that something is wrong with it. <laughs> And then we read the New Testament and we go, wait, these two things are not the same, right? And then we look at our context. We look at all of us take these three pieces, inherited, scripture, and our context. And of course, context has two connotations. One is time, like the time in which we live, the era, the epoch in which we live. And the other is place. Uh, you know, the, the nation, the language, the culture, the, you know, even city or even neighborhood sometimes can be significant in, in understanding or applying our context. So this is the thing we inherited. It's not quite right. This is the Bible. It's inspiring me to something that's possible. I'm looking at my world, my place where I'm from, and I'm going to do something fresh, something new. And that's, you can think of that as like a spiral And that kind of, that happens in every generation. It's supposed to happen in every single generation. We're supposed to critique, not to tear down, not to destroy, but to reimagine, 
to reawaken the church. There's meant to be a renaissance in the church every generation. So think of it this way. Every 20 or 30 years, we should be doing that for the church. So it does start with a kind of troubling analysis going, this thing which we've inherited, surely there is more, right? And I did that. You're going to do that. My kids are going to do that. And my kids are going to look at the underground and they're going to go, mm, ah, there's just some stuff about it that isn't quite the Bible. You know, it isn't quite New Testament enough. Good for them. Uh, they're supposed to be troubled by what's missing. And they're supposed to look at their context and they're supposed to try to express it in their time, in their way. And I think the spirit of God is alive in that cycle in that sort of spiral and he'll do it again and again and again. And this is how the church is renewed. So if old forms of the church die, that is nothing to grieve. That is nothing to, now we may miss our old songs or miss <laughs> our old, you know, things we used to do potluck suppers or whatever. But honestly, the church lives on in this like unbreakable chain of history, precisely because it is self renewing. And it's only self-renewing because we're willing to take our inherited system and go, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. So you have to do it. I have to do it. Our kids have to do it. And so on and so on and so on. So don't panic. Step into that stream. It was the stream that came before you. You know, I'm in Ireland here. We're working with a lot of Methodists. I've never really had much contact with denominations. So it's a new world for me. And I, they love John Wesley. And I love John Wesley. I think John Wesley was an amazing person, amazing story, an amazing apostolic innovator for the church. And that's what he did. He took this Anglican tradition that he inherited and said, this isn't it. This isn't enough. And he innovated. He got on his horse and he preached outdoors and he went to where the people were. And he was like the consummate missionary. And he created these little societies of holiness and and these little micro churches and he did this incredible thing and now all of a sudden you have methodists going well we, we're just wringing our hands with oh change how can we possibly change what do you mean how can you change this is this is your this is your pedigree this is your like you, you come from one of the most innovative churches of all time but that's just how it is that that system becomes institutionalized his ideas became institutionalized yeah. and now we need a fresh john wesley need, and actually you're not you're not betraying him. You're honoring him by critiquing the thing which has become an institution which no longer works anymore. So it's all part of the deal, man. Wow. So basically you are the new John Wesley of <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> no, certainly not. But, but I am, I am, uh, I am a, a cheerleader for all the little John Wesleys out there. You know, all the, all the kind of brave leaders you know you, you said something at the beginning about um you know us being at the frontier of some kind of new idea or whatever but what's interesting about going to the philippines or just being in the global south even places like mexico and latin america man bro they've been doing stuff like this for a long time you know small expressions of the church empowered people the spirit of god kind of just releasing people without seminary, without training, without buildings, mm. without money. This has been going on for some time. So it may be new to those of us in the kind of hierarchical Western system, but it's not really new to the world. And in point of fact, we're just catching up with places like China and Latin America 
in Africa. So, you know, I, I suppose it's about time we got to the party, but uh, it's not like we, you know, we came up with these ideas. Wow. Do you think there's a correlation between, uh, I mean, you were saying, and even you mentioned it in the book, that persecution has a way of filtering out the posers, right? And do you think that's part of the, maybe what you're describing, right? The church thriving in other, you know, the West is kind of like just catching up to what's happening in other churches uh, around the world. Do you think that's you no know, maybe part of persecution? Have you witnessed anything like that? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I'm the best most qualified person to answer it, but I would say um, there is some kind of correlation between suffering and the advancement of the church or the coming of the kingdom, you know, like maybe because, maybe because in the end suffering is about love, you know, like mm -hmm. I'd say love is suffering actually in point of fact. And that, you know, everybody likes to say, Oh, the, the Christian message is a message of love. Sure. But do you really know what you're saying when you say the word love? Because this is how we know what love is. The, the epistle of John says that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So actually, love is to die. Love is to, to love something so dearly that you would be willing to suffer for it. You know, Shakespeare said, Romeo suffered love for Juliet. It's to love something is to hurt, to feel pain. And I feel that way about mission, too, like our call into mission, our, our yes to mission as churches, as people. It's a yes to suffer. You know, it's a yes to love a group of people so much that you'll lay down your life that you'll sacrifice um and it will cost you it will in fact cost you but what you experience is the love of god what you experience is love as i have loved you you know i, I send you and i want you to love the way that i have loved and i do think that the church in the global south at least in my experience um knows how to suffer and they understand that that's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. It is to come and die. It is to take up a cross. It is to lay down our lives. And maybe that's something we've gotten wrong in the American church, like pretty profoundly wrong, which is like, come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. Come to Jesus and he'll, you'll get more money or a better job, or you'll have godlier kids, or you'll have a sexier wife or something like that. And the truth is, I, I just think that's, heterodox i think that's possibly even offensive to the to the the biblical you know narrative um not to say that that our lives aren't better in some way when we say yes to jesus ultimately you know maybe there's something like a concept of joy that mm. deep sense of like what who i am matters and what i do matters but not not a life free of pain. <laughs> it's yeah. probably the opposite, you know? Um, so yeah, it's not, not to say the American church is terrible and everywhere else is great. Um, although sometimes I feel that way, but, but, but certainly that where the church has thrived, it's because it was willing to take up a cross. It was willing to, and understood maybe even the beauty of that cruciform choice, you know, to, to come and die 
And, and the world is won that way. The world is still won by people willing to not just incarnate into their reality, but to, with blood, sweat, and tears, love. Wow. Yeah, that's so profound. I, I love it. I think, um, yeah, sometimes if you don't see love expressed that way, you cannot understand it, right? It's like... Yeah. Don't don't tell me about love. Like show it to me, right? Yeah. Ah, oh, that's yeah. so good. How can we? Or I, I, well, I want to wrap it up with this. What is the? I mean, I know you have the underground church book, but I think I saw you guys were developing something like a micro churches, uh, some sort of book or guidelines or what is that about? What is like the next step after the underground church for you? <laughs> Yeah, just, just this last year, we published a book called Microchurches, uh, A Smaller Way. So that's out there. That's on Amazon. Uh, people can check that out. I'm not sure what 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 you should read first, honestly. Mm. I suppose if you're a church leader type or you're in church leadership, uh, you know, the underground church book is really more about that. It's more about structure and kind of an overarching shift in in the way we do things but if you're just sort of a a follower of jesus and and you feel like there might be more for your life um microchurches is the book because I, it's it's really me saying okay at the heart of what the underground is it's it's a bunch of people that have said yes to jesus and said yes to his mission and once they've been given permission like we talked about and once they've been given kind of the tools and the services that support them what do they do And what do they create? And they're they're just beautiful things, and and wildly creative. And you know, in that book, I talk about the idea of like Jesus talking about little ones. You know, there's there's a few references in the in the Gospels to Jesus referring to little ones, and they're so tender and they're so protective. And it's not just saying children. He's actually using the word there in Greek is the word micron which is obviously where we get the word micro, like little things. Wow. And to me, it expresses God's, like this deeper reality of his heart, of the way he feels about little things, like little precious things that make up the best bits of our world, you know? And sometimes we've imagined that the church is better because it's bigger. Like surely a church of 500 is better than a church of 200. Surely a church of a thousand is better than a church of 500. You know, says who? And, and on what grounds, you know, do we make that decision? And so I make a sort of counterintuitive argument that actually some of these little expressions of the smallest expression of the church are the best, the best kind of glimpse or picture into what the church can and should be. And that what we ought to do is not try to make those a lot bigger, but just try to see more of them exist in the world. And so the first half of the book is really about maybe making a case for the microchurch. And then the second half is a kind of guide to how to start one, a sort of four stage process for how to start one. So I don't know, I don't, depending on who you are, you know, maybe, you know, which, which book might be of more interest to you. you know? Yeah. I would go chronologically. So I would start with the blue okay, one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just to make it easy. Uh, mm -hmm. That's so good, man. W I mean, is there a place where you would love for people to go to find the books and specifically, or doesn't matter? Is there a website? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think 
uh, underground uh, undergroundchurchbook.com possibly and then a smaller way dot something dot org dot com is the other book it's, it's on amazon so it's easy if, okay. i'm sure your your people are tech savvy they can find things google things and if you can't maybe maybe it's not god's will buy something else you know <laughs> <laughs> no this is good man man i really appreciate it is there is there a no a final thought you want to just tell the audience you know about the future of the church I, I, maybe maybe just the idea that um I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that, that courage is the form of every virtue at its breaking point. So whatever it is that God's calling us to in the future, whatever, whatever the contours of the future look like, it will require courage. Um, so whether that's structural changes that we may need to make in our churches, maybe it's just saying yes to this thing which you felt in your heart that God was calling you to do for a long time. And you just haven't done it. Maybe it's a saying no to something or it's an act of holiness. It's like every single thing that's good in our lives that comes out of the fruit of the church or the kingdom or walking with Jesus requires courage. And the future is going to need that too. We just need a renaissance of bravery, actually. So that'd be my prayer, you know, for everyone listening and maybe a prayer worth praying. Like, Lord, just give me the courage to do what I know you want me to do. Wow. So good, man. Yeah. Um, I pray for people that are listening to be brave and to embrace their callings and what what people is inviting them to participate in. Man, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been wonderful. First, I mean, reading your book here with the church staff. Um, and I think my pastor was at a conference a few years back, like called Blue Ocean or something like that, where he met you. That's how he got the book for That's everyone. Cool. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's been wonderful. I hope you no know, people listening for sure will get we'll we'll get pretty deep with this one. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, man. And Thanks, you know, man. have have a good time there in Ireland. Okay, thanks a lot, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christian Podcast. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. Make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you can. 
You can also visit christianpodcast.com to learn more about our show. Hasta la vista.